This was pre-planned, premeditated five months in advance. And it was initially timed to take place on the Gurupur of Guru Nanak Dev Ji, which falls in the first week of November. But obviously that planned genocide was brought forward. All right, what's going on everyone? Welcome back to another Ramblings of a Sikh podcast. Today's topic of discussion is the November 1984 anti-Sikh genocide. This topic is not only dear to Sikhs around the world, but is also perhaps one of the most misunderstood periods of human history amongst the general public. This ignorance is fully due to top to bottom government cover-up. The intimidating and unconquerable state ensuring the reality of the events took decades to reach the wider public and justice, well, there has been almost none. Today I get to sit with Pav Singh, thank you for having me, author of 1984 India's Guilty Secret and discuss a whole range of questions including how his own family was impacted by the events of 1984. If Indira Gandhi had not been assassinated, had the events of November 1st to November 3rd taken place? How and why did things come to an end on November 3rd? Naming those who are responsible starting with those right at the top. And not to forget we also question and look at the extent to which the British government helped the Indian government during 1984. We obviously discuss a whole range of other questions and there's a lot that you will hopefully learn from this. So please don't forget to like, comment, subscribe and watch this right to the end. Now let's get straight into it. So if you don't mind, could you possibly tell us a little bit about your family's um, upbringing and history and where you kind of fit into all of that? Sure. So I was actually born in Yorkshire, um, in in Leeds, um, but my parents are from the Punjab, um, of Sikh background. Um, so my dad actually came over in 1962, um, actually from Singapore. So he was in Singapore for um, the duration of the the war, and then after the war, um, he got married and then brought. Um, his wife, my mother, over, um, and um, my older brother as well, who was born in Singapore. So they, they all three came over. Um, and then, uh, yeah, um, settled in um, Leeds, of all places. Um, so my dad, actually, although he was um, a bit of a businessman in Singapore, over here, he did quite hard work in terms of building sites, and um, he did uh, work in scaffolding. Um, and my mum was a streamstress, so working in the textile industry in in Leeds. Um, so yeah, I was um, I was born in 1966, but coming in '84, I think I was 17 years old. So um, the actual day of Mrs. Gandhi's assassination and what took place afterwards is still vivid in my in my memory, um, especially the particularly the morning of the 31st. So um, I'm very familiar with, with the events. Um, I also have my maternal um, aunt who was based in Delhi at the time. Um, my aunt, uh, Masi and my Masad and four cousins, they were all based in Delhi. So um, managed to get first-hand accounts from them um, following um, 1984 with my frequent visits to to India um, so yeah that's pretty much my background um, I went to university down in in London and I basically stayed down down south um, but it was really during my university days that became quite political um, in terms of what was going on here um, we still had the apartheid system in South Africa so I was uh, very keenly campaigning against apartheid during the late 80s, um, marching against um, the, the, the racist government in South Africa, calling for the release of Nelson Mandela. Um, and I am also um, quite active in the anti-Nazi league at the time as well. So we had a growth of the, um, the BNP at the time and before that, the National Front. So I was quite active against um, the emergence of fascist organizations who were causing lots of trouble against uh, black and Asian communities in the late 80s and early 90s. So that was sort of my kind of political background. And I was, I think I was always kind of on the political um, left at the time. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much um, where, where I came from when, when I faced looking at 1984 in a different way obviously i'm from a generation that didn't 
first-hand live through the events that took place in 1984 and a lot of what we've learned has been passed down through the accounts and the research of the work of obviously like your generation and the generation prior when you were talking about living through October 31st and November 1st it kind of sounds similar to like events such as like 9-11 which were kind of world changing could you just expand a little bit about actually what you remember from that day itself in terms of like you obviously woke up and like brushed your teeth or whatever like as in like I know a lot of people kind of say do you remember where you were on 9-11 or when Nelson Mandela was released from prison or x y or z like in a similar way I guess it would definitely be fair to say this was this is a comparable event most definitely and I think particularly 1984 there was a build-up to the events of November so you had the shock of June 1984 and I think that was a real shock to the Sikh psyche, not only in India, but also the world, the you know invasion of the Golden Temple by Indian army troops um, and the, the massacre that took place. So there was a big, big shock already that was, that was there and um, Sikhs around the world, and particularly in, in Britain, um, there was a major march in London um, that I still remember my mum talking about um, at the time. So there was a deep, hurt within the Sikh community already approaching October 31st. But October 31st, I still remember I was getting ready to go to school. I was in sixth form um, and um, yeah, the TV was on. We, we, we knew straight away what, what, what happened. We were quite shocked actually. Um, so there was a few hours of real shock. And then slowly when the, um, the news started repeating that it was two Sikhs, who had killed Mrs. Gandhi in revenge of what happened in June. Um, it sort of dawned on people slowly that this wasn't good for the Sikh minority in India. Nothing was going to come good of this. But I think we were quite surprised in the next few years how that retaliation took place. How is it that for the act of just two Sikhs in killing Mrs. Gandhi, the whole Sikh community in India were blamed for that assassination um, so that sort of deep hatred that sort of started developing from early on in 1984 sort of permeated in all sections of Indian society. And I think that was the big surprise for us, um, particularly, um, you know, in relation to who was involved from the top also, who was involved at the bottom as well. Um, so it wasn't very, it wasn't so clear cut. Um, but it was only years later that a fuller picture emerged of what actually happened, not only the organisation, but also um, in terms of neighbours actually turning turn upon their neighbours, which was quite a shock for us. So just kind of two things off the back of that. And I think one thing that is often retold when it comes to this narrative is that the assassination and then the events that took place are intrinsically linked as though if the assassination hadn't taken place there wouldn't have been the response like to what extent is that true because obviously when you read your book it's very clear that there is really serious planning that takes place and anyone who kind of looks at the bigger picture would assume that you can't really plan something on such a scale so quickly so to what extent is the assassination and the response linked and it, like in what way does it work so people at the time particularly human rights groups um documented some of the organization that took place but it it was only 30 years later that the real truth emerged in terms of pre-planning uh, months in advance so we do have um, evidence now from um, a person who worked as a civil servant in the government who has said that you know five months before um, you know lists were compiled from the Gurdwaras in Delhi of Sikh homes and businesses and there were also used school rations lists as well um, and this came right from the top from someone who was part of the um, Gandhi Nehru family, um, Arun Nehru MP, um, who, was, who was involved in organising those. So we can actually now look at 
actually this was pre-planned, premeditated five months in advance. And it was initially timed um, to take place on the Gurupur of Guru Nanak Dev Ji, which falls in the first week of November. Um, but obviously with the assassination that took place on the 31st of October, um, that um, planned genocide was brought forward. Um, also running um, the weeks towards 31st of October, there's lots of evidence, um, eyewitness accounts, of people being warned that this was going to take place. People told to take their children out because um, the timing of the 1st of November was set um, as soon as the assassination happened, um, that this would take place and um, the mobs would have three days free reign of Delhi and um, outskirts of Delhi in northern India, where Congress was in power. They would have three days to exact revenge on the Sikh community. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of merging evidence um, that it was definitely pre-planned. Um, you know, there was, you know, even if you look at the logistics of what took place, the, the, the availability of kerosene, which isn't available to you know, the average man on the street, the availability of the white phosphorus um, chemical powder, which you can't procure unless you know, there's organization behind it, which is used to burn um, its victims to, to the bone. Um, the, you know, the use of the buses, um, the unauthorized train stoppages that took place throughout Northern India to um, seek out seats on, on railways. Um, there's so much in obviously the, the list distribution of the lists as well, the marking of Sikh houses the, on the 31st of October. And also when the killings had taken place, there was a big um, operation which involved the police um, to dispose of the evidence, um, dispose of the, of, of the bodies. So there was trucks and trucks coming out of Delhi to the outskirts of Delhi. And there was mass cremations that were, that were taking place. Um, so yeah, it's a heavily organized event that can only take place months before um, in order to, to, to make sure that the count was in the thousands, not in the hundreds. So it's pretty fair to say that had the assassination hadn't taken place, something was more was being planned. And the fact that this assassination took place provided not the excuse, but it just brought things forward. Yeah, so um, the reason why I mentioned June 84 is really important because what took place in June and then from June till November, there was a heightened tension. There was, um, you know, there was a feeling in Indian society generally that even though, you know, Sikhs being dealt a heavy blow in June 84, the job hadn't been done. Sikhs needed to be taught a lesson um, for the turmoil that they were blamed for what was taking place in the Punjab, um, the, you know, killings of Hindus in Punjab permeated into outright hatred towards the whole Sikh community. Um, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail what was happening in Punjab, it was, it was very political. Um, there were various different groups, some groups backed by the state, some groups on their own. Um, there were innocent Hindus killed. There's lots of Sikh leaders who were condemning what was taking place. There was a real wedge being drawn between Sikhs and Hindus um, by political forces for their own, own ends by all parties. But I think that was then permeated into Indian society who just looked at what was happening in Punjab and blamed Sikhs en masse. So that propaganda helped and, um, you know, um, laid the ground for such a killing spree to take place. One thing that you mentioned as you uh, recounted the events that unfolded on October 31st last November 1st and kind of what you remember, you comment about how the bigger picture didn't come to light for obviously as you said almost over 30 years. Now 
how does your research tie into that so obviously you said that you had kind of a personal connection because you already had family that firsthand experienced this and obviously were able to tell you their well maybe not depending on the trauma but obviously to some extent they were able to tell you what took place but then in terms of kind of your research and your trips to India could you please kind of expand on like how as your research developed a bigger picture came together and then I guess eventually accumulated into your book yeah sure and I think one of the other things about why I'd started on this path was also my political background when I was at university. So for me to um, stand up against um, racism in South Africa, um, against fascist organizations in this country, fighting for um, equal rights for gays and so forth, I then started to look at actually my own community and what happened in 84 and why nothing had been done about it. Um, And then just looking at the way the official narrative around 1984, the so-called anti-Sikh riots, how it's been framed, um, really, I think, dealt a a, a really powerful um, force in, you know, writing what happened in 84. Um, And it was written, the history of 84 at that time was written by the perpetrators who called it uh, a, a riot, a spontaneous reaction to Mrs. Gandhi's assassination. So I really wanted to investigate and then redress that narrative. And that took me to, to, to India um, in 2005. So I've got family out there. My master took me um, to some of the colonies, particularly um, Dalek Vihar um, and Dalek Nagar, um, you know, visiting some of the survivors and some of the horror stories that I heard. And he plainly told me that his local MP was involved. Um, his local MP in West Delhi was Sajjan Kumar, um, the only MP who's been charged um, out of the scores of MPs and cabinet ministers, but he's the only one who's been charged, but that took 30 years. Um, but yeah, absolutely. There was plain sight from my family's um, um, you know, eyewitness accounts that this was organized, particularly on the 31st of October in terms of bringing the mobs together and then executing that on the 1st of first of November. Um, so every time I went back to India, I kept hearing more stories. And then when I went to Punjab, where I lived for a year, I heard the other stories that were taking place um, post November 84, what was took, took place in Punjab with the army, um, and the human rights um, violations that took place for a whole 10 years uh, where the state really went after um, on the pretext of, you know, going after the militants, went after families and innocents. And then you had the case of the criminations that took place that just advanced in cholera, um, you know, um, uncovered. So there's a whole history there as well that sort of tied in with what was taking place after 84 in Delhi and other places and the injustice um, for 30 years, more, nearly 40 years now of the survivors, where there's, there has been absolutely no justice for them. Obviously, we've already discussed the logistical manpower required to kind of um, successfully execute an operation like this. To what extent are like the police, the army and other kind of official forces that would also have included Sikhs amongst other religions and communities? To what extent are they involved or not involved? So the police was definitely involved. They were heavily involved. And so their boss was Arun Nehru MP, who was, the, who was the, you know, in charge of the home ministry. Um, so on the 31st of October, there was a call from his ministry for Sikh policemen to stand down and go home. And so is this, first... sorry, I don't mean to talk, but as in, just, just for the curiosity's sake, we're, like in terms of location, where are we talking? And equally, is this before or after the assassination has taken place? So this is after the assassination had taken place. Um, a call had been made through the wires, the radio wires, to Sikh police to stand down and go home. So that was the first thing that take, that took place. And a this is the, in Delhi. This is in Delhi, yeah. Um, and then a lot of the a lot of the Sikhs policemen actually were attacked on the on the night of thirty first, and some of them went back on the first of November 
and again they were attacked um, as as well. So, you know, being a policeman didn't make make any difference. You know, um, so they took out the Sikh police who could have helped um, protect protect their community. Um, and then the police, particularly, so we got lots of evidence in particularly in the east of east of Delhi, in neighborhoods like Trilakpuri and Sultanpuri and Mughalpuri on the on the east and also on the west side of Delhi, where policemen actively took part in organizing mobs, directing mobs to seek homes and businesses. Um, actually, they did a kind of a reconnaissance. First of all, they would go into Sikh areas, go to Sikh houses and confiscate license firearms and um, garpans and reassure Sikhs that they'd, they'd be protected by the Sikhs. Once that was done, they would then go and allow the mobs to go into those areas and start start the killings. So they were without the police, this wouldn't have happened. Um, absolutely, very isolated cases where some policemen did protect um, Sikhs, um, but they were very isolated cases. There's a famous case of uh, um, one police officer in in. Uh, Chandi Chalk in, in Delhi, who, who just had to fire one revolver and the, the mobs just dispersed. I mean, if that's all it take, took to, um, to, to, to disperse those mobs but on the whole. And, you know, we've got policemen on camera now admitting what took place, orders given from the above to teach Sikhs a lesson. Um, and the police were there to, to direct the mobs. And then also get rid of the evidence afterwards as well. So how do things or why do things come to a stop then towards the 3rd of November? Sometimes uh, it's stated that the, it's essentially because the army's drafted in that brings things to a stop. Is that because they aren't under the same kind of uh, line of command as the police or like how, how do like how do the, the dynamics of that work? So they were under the same command. So they were under the command of um, the Home Minister, who was Narasimha Rao. Um, so basically, the mobs were given three days to carry out the genocide. The army was kept back for those three days. So we know from the testimonies of army chiefs that on the first day, um, you know, there were orders, not only from the Home Ministry, but also from Prime Minister's um, office not to intervene on the first night. On the second night, they were to just march in some of the areas, but none of the areas were affected. So they were marching down in South in South um, Delhi or somewhere else. It was only on the third that they went into the affected areas. But by that time, the genocide had already played, taken place. You know, if you look at West Delhi, and East Delhi, a lot of the Sikh neighborhoods had already been wiped out um, by that time. Um, and many places that we now know of in Kanpur, in lots of other Northern um, Indian places where Congress were in power, um, outskirts of Delhi, Haryana, Rajasthan, a lot of the places, you know, there was no protection by, by the police um, and the army was really late in coming into those areas um, so those thing, those areas we didn't know about that at the time, and that was uncovered much, much later. Um, but yeah, it was, it was principally three days for the mobs to carry out, and then the army would 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 come in. You've already kind of answered my next question, which was um, whether it was just specifically targeted to Delhi. But as you said, it it's not. I um, mean, it's taken place in in numerous other areas. One question then that I wanted to obviously pick your brain about was what role does the media play in the immediate kind of decade or two that follows this? So, in India at the time, the TV was state owned. So. Um, Doodashan was state-owned. Um, All Indian Radio was state-owned. So the, those two media outlets played a very important part in what took place at the time. So um, on the 31st of November and on the first, sorry, the 31st of October and the 1st of November, there was telecast of Mrs. Gandhi's body um, 
at Deed Wundi House, continuous round the clock. Um, at the same time, um, anti-Sikh hate mob slogans were allowed to be aired um, at that time. So, you know, the infamous Koon Kabadla Koon, Blood for Blood, um, could be clearly heard. And this was, you know, aired on national TV, the only station would India had throughout India. So you could just see how, um, you know, you, you could see the tacit support from a state agency telling people blood for blood. So that was the first thing. The second thing was the national newspapers on the hold didn't cover the killings at all. And even if they did, they talked about 10 people here dead, 100 people here dead, even on the third day. And the only newspaper that actually covered the massacres was the Indian Express. But even the Indian Express um, refused to cover the, the mass rapes that had taken place as well. And, um, you know, I talk about that in the book where the editor said, no, do not cover this, um, even though it was, it was taking place. Um, I think generally on the whole, the media has taken the line of the government, which is that this was a spontaneous, unorganized um, riot that took place. Um, and there haven't, and even to this day, properly investigated um, the, 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 the truth of what essentially was a genocidal massacre where Sikhs as a minority was targeted because they were Sikhs. Their Gurdwaras were attacked on the 1st of November. Um, their scriptures were burnt publicly. Their hair was cut. So there was a real sort of um, clear-cut attack on Sikhi, not just Sikhs in general, but Sikhi to erase their religion and culture, their offspring, um, the women folk, to damage women and girls for generations to come in, in terms of sexual violence. Um, and that story has never been told. Um, and the numbers that they talked about as well, um, they never investigated that this, this went into the thousands and the cremations that took, that, that took place and the post-mortems, they never covered those. They never covered the fact that a lot of hospitals closed their doors to seek victims, um, burn victims. A lot of burn units were shut when actually the, the main um, injury to Sikhs were burns. Many um, Sikhs were attacked outside um, hospitals as well. There were mobs that were waiting outside. Um, doctors refused to, um, you know, um, and this is all documented in my book. Um, even doctors, head doctors, you know, um, admitted that they were told not to, not to, um, you know, treat Sikhs at the time. So lots of Sikhs died um, as a consequence as well. Um, you know, the fire brigade was not um, sent to Sikh neighborhoods. Um, the calls of Sikhs on the telephones were unheard, you know, completely ignored um, until, you know, the third day. So um, you can literally see, if you look at some of the maps that um, I have in the book, the areas that were affected completely wiped out. And those Sikh neighborhoods don't exist anymore particularly in West and East Delhi. Um, and those Sikhs who did manage to survive are now in, um, you know, areas um, in other parts of Delhi. Um, so those areas were, um, you know, um, ethnically cleansed. In your book, and particularly in your chapter, um, I think it's called Body Count, you do a really good job of kind of compiling all of the different lists in terms of reports and estimations of those that were murdered or impacted by the carnage that unfolded over those few days this is obviously in some respects kind of a rhetorical question but do you kind of expect that we'll ever know the true extent of what actually happened during those few days like your book is incredible in terms of putting together a very comprehensive picture but it just sounds like there was so much involved 
in terms of the logistics, the planning, even the execution of something like this, do you think we'll ever really know the true extent of what took place? No, I don't think so. You know, it, it was so widespread and there's many areas that weren't covered by the official but also unofficial reports, um, human rights reports. There's a lot of areas where outer skirts of villages in Haryana, in northern India, um, the, the violence that took place on the on the trains and the buses were never were never covered. It's only years later that we found out there were massacres that took place in those in those areas. Um, I, you know, I, I I think my main aim was to, to create a body of work that was evidence based, um, and it was really important that I was focused on evidence and witness testimony. I didn't want to um, shy, go outside that and, and make assumptions and presumptions, because um, I think this was a really important um, work that you know, had come after you know, being part of um, trying to get justice for the victims. And I felt that there was nothing really comprehensive, evidence-based work that you can bring all, all the evidence together. I mean, there were various eyewitnesses. People have written books in India and particularly of, from their point of view of their area. The official accounts didn't cover everything. The, uh, some of the human rights um, reports were only based in Delhi and no other areas. So I wanted to really bring together the whole picture as much as, 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 much as I can covering you know, not just the killing, but also looking at, you know, how Gurdwaras was, uh, you know, attacked first, how um, the police was used, the army kept the barracks, how rape was used during those days. Um, and also looking at the official inquiries. So we had two major inquiries, the Misra and the Nanavati, and I really looked into detail exactly what took place the witness testimonies and which were used, which were ignored. And you could see a clear line that those official um, inquiries still followed that official line of being a riot. And so they discounted rape, they discounted the organization, they didn't want to look at the role of Arun Nehru or the chief police officers at the time, what they were doing. They completely discounted that. They were saying, even at the Nanavati, saying that maybe there was some organization that was behind it, but actually didn't identify who that was, who, who they were. Um, so there's a lot of areas um, that are still, to this day, not, not being properly investigated. So one thing that I really appreciated with your book was you put together a really comprehensive list and detailed uh, essentially the main individuals who are accused in being involved in what took place. I put together a short list and I'm sure I've missed a few people out but and again I'm like I'm sure you can provide more detail but you've already mentioned Arun Nehru, uh, Krishan Lal Bhagat again he's another whose name is being pivotal and witnesses say they saw him, Gabal Nath for influencing the police, uh, I think you've already mentioned Nard Simarao, again, a high profile politician. And then obviously you've got people like you've mentioned, like Sajun Kumar and Jagdish Taitler, who are probably more known to the diaspora. Now, you mentioned Sajun Kumar's arrest earlier. Is that a sign of justice finally happening or is he just essentially like the sacrificial lamb, as in he's getting old, kind of there's been this huge pressure for something to happened or for the state to look like they're they're doing something um and he's the one who's kind of like been yeah led to the slaughter rather than there being some type of system that's actually going to work through the whole kind of backlog of cases and everything else that that is kind of still lingering from 1984 i think in terms of Sajjan Kumar, it was so obvious his involvement and his party men's involvement. Um, whereas the other leaders have done a really good job in um, not just covering up, but help getting the police to intimidate witnesses and so forth. Whereas with Sajjan Kumar, we had you know really strong witnesses um, in terms of the women who who couldn't be ignored. Um, 
So I think that's one of the things with Sajjan Kumar, but I just really want to start from the top, really. You know, we need to talk about Rajiv Gandhi, first of all, um, and his role, which in, in, in effect, although he'd lost his mother, he really looked to the other way and he was very indifferent to the violence that was taking place, carried out by his own men. So that's the first thing you, you, you can see that he laid the ground for this to take place. He refused to call out the army on the 31st of, of October. If they were called out on the 31st, this not, would not have happened. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, secondly, he then promoted the very leaders who were involved in the massacres um, during the elections and promoted them, um, a couple of them to high office cabinet ministers and the others um, were allowed to run for the Congress party. So in, in fact, this was a Congress-led pogrom to start with. So you have Rajiv Gandhi, then you have his home minister, um, Narasimha Rao in charge of the police and the army, Arun Nehru, and then if you go below that, then you have these local leaders, the likes of Bhagat, who was in charge of um, East Delhi, um, Sajjan Kumar, um, Jagdish Teitler, and a whole lo lo load of local MPs. And then below that, you have the local councillors who were also, also involved. Um, and then you have the mobs. So you have local criminals that known to the Congress party who were brought together on, on the night of the 31st. Um, and on the 1st of November to say, right, this is, this, the, the, you've got the green light. Um, and then the lists of Sikhs were distributed on, on, on that night. Um, you know, Sikh households were marked um, to, be, to be targeted um, with an S um, so that the next day, you know, people know where, 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 the, where they go. The kerosene wasn't, was available. The, the, the mobs brought in on buses into Sikh neighborhoods. Um, Gurdwada was attacked first, and then um, the police would go in, as I explained, um, confiscate weapons, and then the mobs mobs would go in. So, so from a from a political point of view, this was a, a government organized from a senior um, Congress led um, um, angle. But at the same time, there was also something else that was happening as well, because it's very easy just to say, oh, it's just the Congress and it's the government. And you forget about the actual mobs and the neighborhoods. Um, so, you know, the mobs were made up predominantly of Hindus. Um, these were Hindu mobs who were on the one hand um, organized by the Congress party, but there were many mobs that were not, but they wanted to exact revenge on Sikhs. There was a lots of other things that was happening in terms of, you know, um, the motives on in some areas, land grabbing in, in, in some outskirts of Delhi. Um, and also um, the feeling that Sikhs need to be cut down to size um, as, as well in some areas neighbor did turn upon neighbor but other areas neighbors saved Sikhs so you've got to be really remember that the two things were happening at the same time lots of Hindus protected Sikhs and Muslims protected Sikhs to you know um, against the mobs when the other areas they were part of the mob um, so it's not just clear-cut you know political organization it's also on the ground what was taking place no, definitely. It's not just black and white. With all of the podcasts, I post out normally before I'm recording to the community that obviously this podcast is coming up. This is the topic. Are there any questions that you would like me to, to put to the guest? And one person that kept being um, asked about was Gyani Zelsing because he sits, he's part of the Congress. Whilst he's in power, 1984 takes place June, November. He's there throughout all of it. And it was probably the most common sent in question now could you perhaps kind of just enlighten us about like how does he fit into everything that's taking place at this point yeah Gyanis Zail Singh's story is quite interesting because he 
was a major player in Congress and Punjabi politics. Um, and one of the um, reasons why Punjab was in turmoil because he was in political fights between himself and other Congress leaders in Punjab. Um, there's a Dabara Singh who was the chief minister of Punjab in the early eighties. Um, so there was a real tussle between the two. Um, so I think that the genesis of what took, was taking place in Punjab was actually from, from this political infighting. Um, he was very pro Indira Gandhi. Um, she made him president, um, you know, when she came back, came back to power in the early eighties. Um, I think it was home minister first, then became, became president. So it was really a, a real lackey of, of the Congress party and the, and the, and the Gandhi family. Um, but even him, he, he, even he was not, uh, he, was, he was in the dark when the, um, the Indian army was sent into the, gold, into the Golden Temple, he wasn't told. And it, there, you know, there was a period just after, after June where he could have, he, he was thinking of resigning, but he didn't. You know, the, 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 the moral thing would, would have been for him to resign and he, he didn't. And even November, when he knew that his own party was involved in mass killing, he still didn't, um, he still didn't resign. There was one famous journalist who told him that he'd seen Sikhs in morgues, you know, stacked up in Delhi and he, he, he just cried. So he was, he was one of those people completely, um, you know, spineless, but also just wanted to stay in his kursi, his seat, didn't want to lose his, his job, come what may. So it's, it's a real sad story about him, you know, what kind of person would do that. But um, there are Sikhs like that, particularly in Congress, who, who even afterwards protected the perpetrators. Um, his famous Sikhs in Congress who protected Bhagat Singh, um, sorry, not because um, HKL Bhagat um, from the courts, um, and even even today, you know, you, you see Sikhs in Congress who refuse to believe that the Congress Party was involved in the massacres. So Glenn is not it's still it's it's not black black and white. They asked people like that um, in, in, in involved, but yes, absolutely, um, it's, he he was a sorry state at the end of it, and. He did admit to his secretary before he died that um, he, he pointed the finger at the senior leaders um, in Delhi. So he named Sajjan Kumar, Jagish Titler, Kamal Nath. Um, he, he, he even said that on the night these people had met and talked about the slogan that we, they would use, Kun Da Badla Kun. Um, and he also said that they'd met um, the night after, on the night as well um, with senior police leaders um, in Delhi. He knew full well that they were, they were involved, but he at no stage actually said, you know, I'm, I'm going to call these people out. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, one of those awful stories of, of, of someone, a character who could have changed, who could have made a difference, but he refused to, refused to do that. We've only got a few questions left and obviously the most recent news regarding the events that took place in 84 is a lot to do with British involvement and your chapters on this do a really good job of painting a very clear picture of what's happening. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but between 1975 and 1984, India spent something like £1.28 billion on British arms. Now, even today, that's a pretty big amount. So... What does this have to do with what's happening during 1984, both in terms of June and November? And is it as clear cut as trade deals over lives, essentially, in terms of, well, first that, and then secondly, to what extent are the British actually involved? So I think, you you know, the recent revelations a few years ago where it was clear cut in terms of June 84, um, you know, there were conversations and there was a, um, a, a group of SES that was dispatched to the Golden Temple to do um, survey and do some work for the army is, is documented. The actual reconnaissance report has suddenly gone missing. So I think there's a lot of 
um, stuff that's still hidden. Um, and I think the, the government, the, the, the British government is quite embarrassed um, of what, what taken place, particularly the, con the, the, the Conservative government. It was Mrs. Thatcher was head of that government at the time, was very close to Indira Gandhi. Um, she herself was, um, you know, a victim of an assassination just three weeks before Mrs. Gandhi, you know, the, the IRA um, and, and the bombing in, in, in Brighton. So she survived that attack. Um, but yeah, she was very close to Indira Gandhi. Um, but um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Trade deals and arms was top of the list of, of this, you know, this country as it is with, you know, the likes of Saudi Arabia and, you know, um, arms deals and, you know, billions of trade trumps human rights. It has done for a long time. So, but, you know, unfortunately Sikhs were sort of sacrificed um, for those trade deals. And even years after, you know, the government looked the other way, they took the official line that these was communal rights. Um, they've never questioned um, the injustice of Sikhs. Um, and yeah, it's one of those um, situations where it's very difficult for governments in the West to um, raise this issue um, to the government in India where they wanna be friends with. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I still think a lot will still come out in terms of what took place um, in 84 and the British government. Well, in your book, you state that in 2016, a kind of a huge swathe of documents disappeared from the National Archives, um, or sorry, were withdrawn by the FCO from, from the National Archives. And you've obviously previously just commented that the government must be embarrassed. Is there any idea of what those documents may include? Because obviously you spoke about this reconnaissance report, which I assume may or may not be one of these documents, but I, like the fact no one can find it now is obviously very suspicious. But is there any idea of what these other documents could be or is it essentially we have to wait and see if they ever kind of see the light of day i think we have to see really i think the the, the big thing is the reconnaissance report that mysteriously disappeared and that would show what they did these sas people in the golden temple before the attack what advice they've given to the indian government um, in terms of arms logistics helicopters and so forth. Did they even suggest bringing in the tanks where the, which eventually happened? Um, did they pinpoint certain sacred sites? Did they look at the Sikh library, which was burnt um, after the attack? So there's various things that we do not know um, until we see that report. We can't really, um, you know, um, presume what's in there. There may be other reports that they investigation that they may have you know carried out we again we 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 simply don't know but what we do know that they did dispatch the SES um and what they've said to date is that they just advised the Indian government they did not um you know they weren't part of the planning um for, of, of the attack on the golden temple it was more more to do with advice than anything else so your book was obviously published in 2017 and it's obviously now been almost five years since, well, probably over five years actually. Has more come to light or has there been something that since you published it, you've come across and has either added to the narrative or changed the narrative or some in, in some way? So that's really interesting because um, when it was published, and you, you probably know it wasn't just published here in the West, but also in India by an Indian publisher, um, and it was warmly received by lots of people. And I was quite struck and surprised that that had happened. Um, so there is a body of people in India of all faiths who know what happened. They were there. Many of them did protect Sikhs. Many of them have been part of the campaign to, to get justice right across Sikhs, Indian society. So that's the first thing um, that um, I think it sort of brought home a lot of the memories that they had already had, but weren't actually put down on paper. Um, so that I think is really important. Um, 
since the publication, obviously, Sajjan Kumar has been convicted and he's in prison for life. So that happened about two years after my publication. Um, there have been few cases, but the bigger thing that, again, my book is trying to and did highlight is the whole narrative. We still have the issue of the narrative being the riot that's peddled not just by the official done, but also by the media, both in India and internationally. They can't see above the riots narrative. And I think that's something that um, I'm keen to, you know, bring forth to people generally that we really need to name the crime properly. This wasn't spontaneous. This was organized. This was targeted. This was premeditated. And the thing about genocide is you need to have intent. So the intent that I've outlined in my book, that there were meetings beforehand, there were mobs, there were leaders telling the mobs to um, destroy Sikhs as a group in whole or in part in those areas and to wipe them out. So there's definitely intent there to wipe out Sikhs as a group. Um, and that's the definition of, of genocide. So that's, we really need to discuss what that meant um, in terms of naming the crime. Because if you don't name the crime, then you, how can you prosecute, prosecute the crime? You know, no use prosecuting people on communal riots. Um, this is, you know, something very different. It has different elements. So you have the, 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 the sexual violence and the genocidal rape element towards it. You had the, the targeting of Sikh, um, you know, Gurdwaras and Sikh symbols as well. So there's definitely a religious element towards it. The, you know, um, the wiping out of communities and the ethnic cleansing of those areas. So there's lots of elements which are part of the genocide um, genocide convention that you can you can identify. And then, you know, which I actually um, call for is in India, we do need a, a law against genocide. We don't have that at the moment. We need that on the statute book so we can actually start um, convicting people on the grounds of um, hate crime, calling for genocide, genocidal crime um, and so forth. And I think that's been a real problem when these cases come up, judges don't know what to call, you know, what, what, what to convict people on. And they just say, oh, they had, there's, you know, um, it was a communal thing and a few people died and that was it. Whereas actually behind that, there's the organization um, you know, who brought the mobs together, who brought their weapons together, who covered up, um, you know, the violence afterwards. And then who carried on covering that up by using judicial judges to cover up the story and the med the role of the media, the role of the police and the army, all that story has never been touched um, um, even to, to this date. And I think it stems from that view of this being a communal right. No, definitely. So your final chapter deals with truth, justice and reconciliation. And you kind of have a kind of a general objective with this chapter in terms of what you're trying to achieve. Could you kind of explain to everyone listening what it is that, or what do you think should happen in terms of holding those who are responsible to account? So do you think that will, first of all, ever happen? And secondly, if it does, how do you think that should take place? It's very difficult in India for that to happen. Um, we have a situation even to this state where the Indian state do not recognise the full extent of the genocide that had taken place. Um, so that's the real big issue. Um, that framing of the violence was completely wrong. And then that sort of, um, sort of sidestrap side the real truth about what took place. Um, the Indian government and the states, rather than just apologizing, they really need to be accountable of what took place and actually and in terms of congress they need to open their books um on this they know a lot more than you know they, they say um so yeah there's first of all we need accountability we need um in the powers to be the civil service the judges judiciary police army all to put their hands up and say this happened on our watch and segments 
of our organizations were involved. Um, so that's the first thing that needs to take place. It's no good calling for inquiries. That's already happened. We've had two inquiries which were whitewashes. And, you know, I do call upon groups, seek groups, do not call for inquiries because inquiries are government-led. They will, you know, scope that inquiry, um, appoint the judge and so forth. What we do need is an independent victim-led, so survivor-led um, truth and justice reconciliation um, commission. So this happened, we've, we, you know, we've got a good precedent on this. It's happened in South Africa, famously, where, you know, um, again, it was victim-led commission who could call the perpetrators, um, who could call victims to tell the truth. In some cases, the perpetrators were told, well, you know, we won't um, convict you, just tell us the truth. And a lot of the truth did actually come out but some of the some of the crimes were so horrendous that people were convicted as well. So you can actually combine combine the two. Same thing happened in South South America, and also in Bosnia. Um, so we really need to frame this so that the victims lead the, the the justice and reconciliation, not the state, because the state was involved. So that's the first thing. Um, so once you've done that, then you can start creating safe spaces for Sikhs to actually come out, the victims, the survivors, the women to have a safe space to talk about the rapes um, that had taken place. That's never been out. Um, and there's two reasons for that. One, the state covered it up. So when, um, you know, some of the doctors went in to take testimonies, the government doctors, they were all men and they completely covered it up. Um, and I think also, you know, it's, you, you, you got to remember at the time there was a lot of stigma and even now there's a lot of stigma against rape and sexual violence, even within the Sikh community. So there's a lot of people in the Sikh community that don't want this to come out because it's shameful, you know, um, it's a stigma and so forth. So again, we need to create a space where women and girl can freely talk about this and then start getting help and counseling and so forth. So that's the first thing. Um, and then we can start looking at the various other things that we can look at, genocide law, how we actually start convicting people um, and, and, and so forth. So there's various things that we can do that we can, we've learned from South Africa and South America that we can uh, you know, um, bring, bring to India but it only happened when we have a government who's going to say, yes, this happened on, you know, the government's watch in 1984. Um, we're not just sorry. So back 20, I think it was 10 years ago when Dr. Manmohan Singh apologized. And then that was it. <laughs> Apology is nothing without accountability and justice. So we've got the apology, now we need accountability and then the justice. And that's what's missing. So I've gotten through all of the questions that I had planned, but there's one question that has popped up in my head whilst we've been talking. And it's a personal question to some extent, because I remember I must have been 13 in 2004, so the 20 year anniversary. And I remember seeing there was like a, an exhibition and when I mean an exhibition it was just like some boards with some photos and some text on at the Gudola and I remember seeing an image of a child who had essentially been half burnt to death and it's still like it's still very viscerally imprinted into my memory and even whilst we've been talking about this it's a quite a heavy subject and I'm sure people listening to this are, pro are, are probably finding it similarly quite heavy what was the personal impact on you when you're going through all of this research you're you're visiting these areas you're talking to survivors and there's also obviously a personal connection not just in terms of religion or uh, connection to the country but also your family is is firsthand involved in this what is the impact and how have you been able to deal with that initially when it happened it was a shock 
and for years afterwards and i think you you probably um you know get a sense from maybe your your parents and grandparents that the shock um materialized into a lot of emotion particularly with that generation so when you look at what happened afterwards the marches it was very emotional um it it wasn't coordinated as much as it could have been obviously there's a language issue at the time um so that that was one thing but i think with me because i was based here rather than india it was far easier for me to step back look at the totality of what taking place even though when i went to india it was quite emotional i was involved in some of you know the 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 human aspect but the, the fact that i wasn't living there day to day kind of gave me an advantage to try and tell the truth um in in a in a in a more kind of um independent and you know not completely divorced of of the of what took place but then i didn't allow it to overwhelm me completely because i think if i'd lived there i wouldn't have been able to do this it would have been so overwhelming i'd probably be too emotional whereas i think detachment helps and also the fact that i've grown up in the west you know in the shadow of the holocaust the shadow of bosnia genocide srebrenica which um is for me a very good comparison srebrenica happened in 1992 the killing of 8000 muslim men and boys by the serb forces and you know that's a sort of number i've sort of um at least 8 8000 sikhs i think were killed in in india um particularly northern india um so i think you know to to kind of target that actually this was you know not comparable to the holocaust millions dead but it was in the thousands um you could you could call it a, a small genocide a genocidal massacre that that had taken place so i think me being detached and me also doing other things in my life you know i'm a you know um i'm very much into running cycling i'm a, a swimmer i'm actually a swim teacher now so i could kind of get out of not just 84 when i wanted to because it when it became too heavy also get out of the community because up until you know point of my book being published a lot of our community kept this story within the four walls of the gurdwara they never very rarely brought it out to the wider community in india and also in the west It's, it became very insular and inward looking when you know what we needed is to bring it out so therefore my involvement in you know my union the national union of journalists so i campaigned for a good 10 years up to my publication you know um pushing motions in support of the victims in two of our conferences in in the nuj uh, my involvement also raising this in the labor party as well and other human rights groups um sort of helped me i think whereas i think if i was in the community i think it wouldn't it it would have been too overwhelming no definitely well we've got to the end of all of the questions including the ones that um have just popped up along the way so i obviously first have to say thank you for taking the time for doing this i obviously just want to double check that we've gone over everything or if there's anything you wanted to include um and if so like obviously feel free to kind of let me know but if not then obviously i can only just say thank you for doing the book i definitely think if people haven't read it they they certainly should do it's a really comprehensive and very extensive story of what happened it's it's very detailed and i think it gives you all of the relevant information um and equally it's not a heavy let me rephrase that it's heavy in terms of the emotional impact because it does get quite difficult but in terms of actually to read through it it's 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 a very easy read um in terms of its readability so thank you for for your time
Thanks for having me, Owen. So you've made it to the end of another podcast episode. I hope you learned a lot from this. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe as it means a lot more than you can imagine. If you wish to take your support even further, please consider becoming a YouTube member or joining our Patreon via the links in our description. Next month's podcast will be with BBC Antiques Roadshow arms and armour expert Ranjit Singh. Play the trailer. So I, I, I knew you were going to ask me this question. So when I'm done, I've taken an object from my current inventory, but actually trying to not be biased here, it is the most exciting and interesting object I've ever found. Um, I'm going to take my ring off and my gutter as well. Con controversial taking my gutter. That's right, it's right here. Um, I'm going to put a glove on. And my hand will reappear shortly. <clears throat> You're not about to just break out into a Michael Jackson. No? <laughs> no? Yeah, I might have uh, <laughs> some white socks and black loafers on under there. <laughs> Sequined socks, right? No. So, here it is. Oh, wow. So, this is a bargainuck. Don't forget to like and subscribe.